0: Uh, you know, it made me think a lot this last week about my favorite Christmas memory. Do you have favorite Christmas memories? Um, any of you grow up not celebrating Christmas? Is there anybody in the room who, who, yeah? And so sometimes you, you, you'd be surprised. Sometimes people have never really celebrated or grew up in, in, in different sorts of households. For me, you know, Christmas was always, I, I mean, it's a little different now, I think, when Christmas begins around August or, um, you know, uh, Black Friday is moved back to earlier and earlier. Now I think, like, Amazon has a day, like, in the middle of the year that they celebrate something, like, you know, middle of the year. What is it called? Like, Prime Day or something like that, which is, like, this sort of, like, hey, guys, don't forget, Christmas is in six months. And so for me, it was always Thanksgiving, and my Thanksgiving tradition within my family is we would have a meal, and then we would gather around my whole family, usually involving, you know, Grandparents and great aunts and uncles and aunts and uncles and all these folks, a big group of people in a, in a, in a room together, and we would put names in a basket and draw names out of the basket. And the name that you drew was the name you had to, you had responsibility to fill a stocking for that person. And it was supposed to be somewhat fun and somewhat meaningful. And as a kid, one of my favorite things to do was to fill that stocking and to and to you know put in. Gag gifts along with something really cool. I didn't have any money, so it was never anything really big, but I I always tried to make things that were meaningful. Usually they would break apart in the stocking and come out in pieces, and I would watch my grandmother cry with tears of joy about the meaningfulness of this, like, you know, popsicle stick creation that had all come apart. And so, But it was always really significant to me. Just the drawing of the names, to to me, signified the beginning of Christmas, and we would decorate our house. Of course, I love that. As a kid, my dad was no Clark Griswold, but you know he, we definitely decorated the house and, and tried to keep up with the, the the Joneses, so to speak. I loved the the shopping part of it. I, I loved the, the idea, particularly as I began to grow into like adolescence, how much fun that season was to be out with my friends and to do things. When I was a little kid, don't I mean don't walk out when I tell you this? But in my household, we actually allowed Santa to be part of it, and uh, and but for in my house, Santa was never really a religious icon, he was much more of a motivational figure, you know. I can seriously remember my mom saying, he sees you when you're sleeping and he knows when you're awake. And it was never a joy in that to me. That was always very threatening. Because that was very much my theology of God at the time as well, is, is that there's nowhere you can go, nothing you can do to escape the wrath of God, and so I knew God was always watching. And now I felt like Santa Claus and God were alongside, watching every bad move I made. And I was sure I literally, a couple of years in my stocking, got coal. Not all coal, but definitely coal was in there as well, as a reminder that you know that wasn't always nice, and uh, it was always appropriate when I when I got it. And so presents under the tree, I would watch. I mean, the way that it worked in my house is the is the present what would you call it? like the nest of presents underneath would grow every day. And so as we got closer and closer to Christmas Eve, there were more and more things that were there. And I would, uh, my mom, Carol somehow, when we would do that when our kids were young, she would put these little notes on them with no tags, and so nobody knew who the gifts were for. And then on the Christmas Eve, she would put the tags on, and almost always they didn't come out exactly right. Um <laughs> which was often fun to see what people opened up. But my mom would put the names on right away, so I would look at these gifts, and I would only I would push everything else to the side, and I would push all mine into one little area so I could look at them day after day and see what was growing, and then my mom would mix them back up. And then Christmas Eve was a big, big night in my house, a big celebration. Christmas Eve was almost bigger than Christmas morning. The family would gather. My dad was the chief of the fire department. The whole fire department would run around the town in the fire truck with Santa Claus in the back of the truck, and they would have this big party afterwards, and everybody would assemble. We'd have a ma- We'd go to church and have a massive meal. Once I went to college, I came back. Christmas to me was all about being on break and hanging out with my friends. All of these things were massive memories to me and had almost nothing to do with Jesus. And really the change, the real change for me came when I really, when my, when, when my knee really, my knees bent to the Lord and, and my heart was changed to, to really see the Lord as King you know, over all things, and suddenly, I mean, I know this is going to sound really bizarre, but I suddenly understood Christmas, I suddenly understood the, the, the significance of anticipating an advent in Maranatha and all this, and it was, it was this message of grace that flooded into me that recognized that a gift was being offered to me that I could never work hard enough for, I could never be good enough for, I was always, I was totally in the naughty, not nice category, and I was deserving of wrath, but he gives me life, and And it just completely transformed the way that I understood Christmas to the point that I became hard to be around because anybody who didn 't give in that spirit, I wanted them to know like a Pharisee, I wanted them to know that Christmas isn 't about giving gifts that can that will that will um, that will spoil in time it 's about Jesus, and you should be happy and so I was growing in grace, as you could tell and uh, and I began to understand it more and more and um, and you know, as a kid, silent night you know was always my favorite. And I don't even know why, because I didn't have any idea what it meant. It, it still doesn't really make sense to me in a lot of ways. Uh, I can't imagine that being a silent night. Um, but now, for me, Joy to the World, we sang a line or, or two from it, is the song that fills my heart with anticipation, because it's the one Christmas song to me that doesn't really focus so much on the fact that he came, but it's focused on his return. And it says he rules the world with truth and grace, and I long for that, I long for that 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 truth and grace rulership to be in total and I no more let sins and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found it, that you know but by, by, by the power of the risen Christ, everything old and infected by the curse will be made new, and that 's why I love that that to me is the is the depth of of what it means for me to anticipate it as an adult, as a pastor, as a father, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I still feel that anticipation, the capital, all capital letters anticipation, because everything now is a reminder to me, you know, the gifts under the tree remind me of of this gift that we've been given in the Lord. The lights remind me, that, you know, of the light of the world. The family coming home reminds me of homecoming, you know, in, in, the, in the sense in which we're welcomed into the Father's home. And I feel a spirit of advent and adventure and, and, and not just for the passing joys of Christmas, the things that come every year, but for for eternal Christmas. Do you know that the fathers of the, I can't remember their names right now, of the stress, the, the preeminent stress study that's out there, list all the most stressful things, like the top 43 most stressful things in life. And do you know that the only holiday that makes a list is Christmas? Isn't that crazy? That Christmas is actually amongst the most stressful things that the that we know in the world. It's because of the because of this, all this stuff that can't be met in it, but it's really not the story of the Gospels. The story of the Gospels in Advent and an expectation is all of our expectations being exceeded. And and it, this, is this, this is my, my heart, my, my entry into this is much like what C.S. Lewis writes at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia where he says every chapter will be better than the one before. This is what I believe that the Lord is inviting us into. And so <clears throat> just pray with me and we'll jump into... Some more of this. And so, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name that you would unpack for us the depth of your word and the, and the significance of your coming. As you say in your word, you came once in grace and you're coming back in glory. Lord, we, we have the wherewithal, we have the capacity to look in both directions, to consider what it means to us that you've come and you've conquered but also what it means to us that you're coming soon. And, Lord, we find ourselves not weighted down by that, but but actually buoyed by that. We feel our hope rising uh, because of the truth of where we live. And so, Lord, we do ask, as cheesy as it may sound, we ask that you would just fill us with that spirit of a Maranatha Christmas, that we would look beyond the—not that we would leave behind or that we would get rid of the passing parts of Christmas, the temporal parts of Christmas that seem to matter— but that, Lord, we would, we would capture them, that we would plunder them like, the, like, like your children plundered Egypt, that as we go through and, and all of the passing parts of the holiday that the world has to offer, that we would just take the meaning out of that and that we would employ it in a deep, deep way in our lives. We ask, Lord, that you would, you would give us a fullness, a feeling of fullness, not just in the meal that we've eaten, but in the word that you now give us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The cool thing about it is that Christmas happened, the first Christmas, the birth of Jesus happened at exactly the right time. It, it's, it's to me one of the most significant things about the story is, is that how God is able to get this exactly right because if it's me, I pull the trigger at a very different time, much earlier or much later. But it, it, Paul tells us in Galatians 4, he says it this way, he says, and when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as, as sons, that we might be brought into this fam- family through the giving of Jesus. And and honestly, that that Galatians 4, 4 and 5 reality of the fullness of time, it, it, the fullness of time, it, you know, you have to really go back to before the creation of the world, but you can at least go back and tie this in really nicely with what happens in after the fall in Genesis 3 when... When God is surveying all that happened, and He makes His pronouncement over creation after it's been spoiled, in, you know, by the by the taking of the fruit by Adam and Eve, and He looks to the serpent and He prophesies over the serpent. He says, "Because of what you've done, because of what's happened, I'm putting enmity between you and the woman, and between you and her, her your offspring and her offspring. So, in other words, you're never going to get a there's, this war that's going to exist is going to exist between us." you know, until it's until it's fully dealt with in the fullness of time. And in the fullness of time, he, my son, Jesus, will come and he'll crush your head. You're going to strike his heel, but when you strike his heel, he's just going to step on your head. And this is, the, the, the theologians call this the proto-evangelion. It's, the, it's basically the first gospel. It's the first telling, the foretelling of the gospel that will come. And so, Genesis 3, God's saying, I'm going to deal with this. In fact, this isn't a surprise to me. And in Galatians 4, Paul tells us, hey, that he actually came in the fullness of time. This is all wrapped up somehow in this idea of, of, of why it happens, when it happens, and how it happens. And so the question is, why, why did it matter? Why did it matter to, to the Jewish people that Jesus came? Why does it matter to us today that Jesus returns? And just to kind of confuse you even more with throwing lots of other scriptural ideas out there, as I was praying about this, bizarrely, the passage of scripture that I keep seeing in my heart about why it matters so much is I see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know their story, right? You know, they have a, they're, they're, there's not a lot about them, in the, but in the book of Daniel, they go into this, the, the, the story we remember that Veggie Tales even makes famous is when they go into the fire, right? They're, 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 they're thrown into the fire because they won't bow down to the idol, and, and when, when they won't bow down to the idol, they're thrown into the fire, and, and King Nebuchadnezzar watches, assuming that they will be consumed by the fire because the fire is so hot, it actually consumes the men who put them into the fire just by getting near to it. But when they go into the fire, they're not touched, and they look into the fire, and they, say, they see a fourth man. And when they come out of the fire, they don't even smell like the, the fire. I can tell you, we had big fires over the weekend at the fire pit, and then one the, you know, out in the field, and you, know, you come in, and everything you're wearing, you know, you're, everything smells like the fire. And these guys were in the middle of this blazing furnace and don't even smell like the fire. And to me, the, the, why it matters so much to us that the Lord came to us It's because you remember with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God didn't put the fire out. He just put Jesus in the fire And, and with them. And it's not about God putting out your fires. It's about who is there in the fire with you. And when you get to the point where you recognize that the fourth man is in the fire with you, it doesn't matter how hot the fire is. And I think we have to kind of embed that within our understanding of Christmas. Not that Christmas is all about stress and fires, but there's this eternal perpetual understanding that doesn't matter what comes our way. If the Lord is in it with us, we'll be okay. Wilderness, no one, just me and Jesus in the middle of, you know, family and wonderful joy and celebration, he's with me. In the middle of fire, he's with me. This is, this is where the anticipation comes from. It's this idea that I orient myself. The word orient actually means east, and it means we're supposed to posture ourselves to the east, perpetually looking for him to come and to return and to restore all things and you know, this forms the foundation of my hope, this solid mooring, this place I can anchor my faith and fix my eyes on the fact that Jesus has come and he's returning and anything that's wrong, he's going to make right and I can just stand here in the fire. So, let me give you a, uh, let's, let's go back to this, let, let's start at the beginning. If you open your Bibles to the very first pages of Scripture in Genesis chapter 1, you'll see these words in the beginning. In the beginning. We call this um, ex nihilo creation or out of nothing. God created the earth out of nothing. There wasn't anything that existed. God spoke. And what did He speak? He speaks just a word, right? He actually speaks a word. In the beginning, God speaks a word. There's there's nothing. God creates the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. The darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God spoke. God said, light. And there's light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. He spoke. He said, this is day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning. That's the first day. The first day, the beginning. It's just as simple as this. God speaks creation and creation results. So hold that in mind, just that idea that this is the way that God creates. And now flip over in your Bibles to the very first words of the book of John. And we read in this, in the beginning. And really... The way that you might want to read this, the way that I think you read it, would be in the beginning of the beginning. Or in an even better way to read it would, would be before the beginning of Genesis 1 was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, if you have a Jehovah's Witness comes and knocks on your door and says to you that that... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Just remind them, because there's no definite article before that, they say that it should be a little g-god, that they translate it every other time in the New Testament as a big g-god. So it's just a massive error. Or just send them to me. I love talking to, to Jehovah's Witnesses. They used to come to the property. They don't come anymore. Um, I see them at the gate station oftentimes, and I love having conversation about this. This is one of the most significant tripping places for Christians over a single little word, the word the. The word the doesn't appear. It doesn't say in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was the God. It just says the word was God, and they think it should be small g. I'm sorry. I'm going off. This is, Lord, sweep it away. It's stuck in my craw because it's such a simple, simple misinterpretation. If you want really, really good expositional teaching line by line, word by word this morning, you should go across the hall with Carol. She's been preparing for weeks, and I'm sure it's really deep. Um, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not, not overcome it. Do you see the connection between Genesis 1 and John 1, the idea of light and darkness in the beginning, the idea that, that, that God was, that Jesus is preeminent, he's with God before, everything is made, is made through him and by him and for him, and that he himself is the light, that, that when God speaks light, The word he speaks is Jesus. It's this, it comes, it's they're they're one thing. And so when he says light, it's the, Jesus is the agency of light that goes boom. And then creation is made. I want to keep reading because I think the the power of this, of this, uh, this idea of Jesus as this glorious light is, you have to kind of read the whole context of this. And so I'm going to keep reading beyond verse four or five. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness is not understood at verse 6. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John, not the John who wrote the gospel. This is John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light. In other words, he's not the light. He's just giving testimony, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light, he came only as a witness to the light. The true light, Jesus, that gives light to every man, was coming into the world. That's called Advent. Was coming into the world. This is the yay, hey, you know, you should anticipate. This is what was happening. Verse 10, he, Jesus, was in the world, and though the world was made through him, light. The world didn't know him or recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If anybody says to you, we're all children of God, actually point them to this verse where it says, to those who receive him, they have the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. And then verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, I want to just unpack that, and then we'll, we'll finish up. I actually want to just uh, skip down to, to verse 14 got a bunch of notes here, but I think I want to just center on this. And I want to just get at the th- three concepts that are in this verse 14. I think the center point of it would be this word glory that we use. But I want to just kind of pull out three, three parts of this that I think matter for us in terms of building within ourselves this kind of spirit of Maranatha, this idea of uh, just, you mean, I want to say that. I want it to drip from my lips with anticipation. You know, when I'm, when I'm you know waiting for December 25th to come, as though it's the only day, but I, I want it to be eternal and perpetual and something that, that, that rises up within me every day. And so here are the three concepts I pull out of this that I think build that within me. First off, it says in, in verse 14, if you could just go to verse 14. Oh, there it is. You have it up there. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. This to me is is the starting place of understanding the significance of what we anticipate, what we'll unpack in the other three messages. And that when we look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke's accounts for this, we're looking at the idea as we sang, never, there, there's never been a man that's more alive, that there, in the fullness of time, God made it clear that the time had come for his, his, his divine nature to be implanted within humankind and so that Jesus would come not, and this is the thing it's hard for us to wrap our minds around, that when Jesus comes, he doesn't leave everything behind in his divine nature and just, he's no longer God and he just becomes a man. So he's 100% man and then he does all of his stuff on earth and he just doesn't sin and then he dies on the cross and then he goes back and becomes God again. So he's either 100% God or 100% man, right? Nor does he say, well, I'm going to go become a man and so I'll split my nature 50-50. So I'm 50% God and 50% man, And then when I'm done, I'll just go back to being 100% God with our memory. It says that when Jesus, when the word became flesh, the understanding we've carried throughout the ages is that Jesus remains fully God, 100% God, and 100% human. This is a mind-boggling reality that you go, how could a person be both? And you go, well, a person couldn't. You couldn't. I couldn't. But this is what it means to be God, that he has the ability to, to, without losing anything about his divine nature, become fully God, or fully man. and what does that mean? It means that Jesus, anything you can think of that humans do, Jesus did the good, the bad, the ugly, the indifferent, all the stuff in between. He does it without sinning, but he becomes full, fully invested in this. the word He becomes flesh, he becomes he puts on skin, he, he, he does everything that we do he 's born. not only does this passage this does this reality of God becoming flesh authenticate all our humanity it even authenticates the idea of like pregnancy you know that that God is willing to go through the entire process you know to be to to be like us he doesn't leave any part of this out this matters to me because it says to me that that God knows me that he's like me that he's led my existence that he's he's shed my tears he's he's had my joy he's He's been fed well. He's gone hungry. He's bumped, you know, his head and scraped his leg. He's, he's you know, maybe he, you know, ha- didn't get invited to the birthday party. Not that I didn't get invited. I, okay, I didn't get invited to the birthday party once. I admit it. <laughs> Hurts. He's like me. But not only is he like me, he's with me. This is what... This is what it means that he dwelt amongst us. Actually, the word that John uses here is the same exact word that we get for, like, tabernacle. You know, so in other words, he he didn't just come and and, and kind of, you know, survey what was going on. He actually came with a clear statement that he was here to stay. You don't, if you come in and you, like, sign, like, a 30-day lease, so you, you sign a lease for 30 days, it says, or you get a hotel room for a few days, and you come in as a consultant, anybody ever... Have, Anybody work in any place where consultants come in? Consultants are defined as people who live at least 50 miles away, right? And so a consultant, the expert comes in, and so God comes like as a divine consultant to show us how to get things right, and he rents a room for for a few days. That's the idea of God coming just to kind of give us some advice and leave. But the the very word that John uses here is meant to give, it's, it's given to us to tell us the fact that God's actually bought property. He's actually... He's actually building a place of his own. You know, it's called a, a, a dwelling place or a place of agreement or a tabernacle or you know, a, a place for his glory. You know, the, the the word that's used there is the same word we would use for the place where God would reveal his glory. And so the idea is that God of him becoming flesh and dwelling amongst me is not just that he's like me or that he's with me, but that he's he's like me. He knows what me is like, and he's willing to come and live with me and be with me. This is a this is a profound, profound truth that goes throughout the book of John over and over and over again. Jesus is returning to this idea of, I'm here with you, I understand what it is to be with you, and I will remain with you. So much so that when he gets to the last four chapters of his time with them before he's arrested, his entire discourse, they call it the farewell discourse, his last words were all about teaching them of what life is going to be like without him, but a reminder that he isn't actually leaving them. He says in John 14, if anyone loves me, he'll obey my teaching, and my Father will love him, and he will come and make our home with him. He's saying basically, I didn't just come to dwell with you, but my Father and I are coming by virtue of the power of the Holy Spirit to actually make a dwelling place amongst you. Jesus says, I'm going to leave, and I'm going to go build a room, a place for you. How'd that song go? My Father's house thing in... I can't remember it now. Big, big house with lots and lots of rooms. A big, big table. Lots of food. Yeah, that's the song. Well, Jesus says this. He says, I'm going to make this place for you. And and the word he uses is the word we get the word abode from. Like an abode, a place. And then he says, hey, I'm going to make this place for you, but don't worry. I'm not just going to do that. I'm actually sending the Holy Spirit to make a home within you. Like, it's, it's like you're going to have a, it's, it's more than one thing. It isn't just a dwelling place where, oh gosh, Jesus is with us, now he's gone, I wonder where he went. Don't worry, I'm coming to you. And he says, not only that, but he, he turns it into a verb in John 15 and he just says, look, it isn't just a abode, a place, but it's actually a concept. If you will just abide, same exact word, Greek word, he just turns it into a verb and he says, if you'll just hang in there with me, if you'll just dwell with me, everything you need I'll give you. He changes the metaphor from a house to a plant, and he says, all the life that's in me, all the life that's in the root will flow into you if you'll just hang on. And you don't even have to hang on. I'll do the hanging on. It's my job to hold on to you. Just don't go anywhere. And so this whole concept of, of him dwelling among us and, and abiding with us is, it's the entire book of John. I read a, a, a it's kind of a poem, and in the middle of this poem, it's, it's, it's actually about um, the prophecy in the book of Isaiah. But as I was reading it, um, the author of this poem breaks off in the middle of the poem because what he's getting at in, the, in, the, in, the, in his poem is, the wilderness and dry land shall be glad, the desert shall rejoice and burst into flower, uh, from Isaiah. and But in the middle of this poem, he breaks off the poem, and he, he talks about a letter that he'd received from a woman. And it's just, it's beautiful to me how significant this is and how much I believe it ties into this idea of God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Like what does it look like for God to set up house in our lives? And he says, I have a letter before me from a woman and though I'm sure she's never heard of this text from Isaiah or John, in her own way she has given us the answer to God's coming, to Maranatha, to anticipation, the answer to Isaiah's prophecy of flowers in the desert, to God's renewal in our own lives and making his home with us. She says, dear pastor, As you know, I'd been troubled for many months before admitting it to myself or even God. But our talk helped me immensely. When I left you, I did go over to the church and I just prayed. I prayed as I've never prayed before. And my prayer was really simple. I just knelt down and I said something like this, God, I can't go on this way anymore. If you don't come into my life, I'll. And then I just started crying. But pastor, I felt him. I really felt his wonderful presence. And as you've told us so many times before, I accepted him. And it's been wonderful. So simple, just wanting him and waiting and anticipating and accepting. And in a way, and I hope you get the impact of this line, in a way, it's like God has planted flowers in my heart. Flowers in your heart. I I think this is the depth of understanding of what it's like for God to come into our, into the, into the, Soil of our lives, and to put seed, and just to say, "Look, I'm building a garden here, you know, in your life. If you'll let me come in, that I've come, I become flesh, so I could you. I know what it is to be like you, and I want to make my dwelling amongst you. And if you'll live with me, and love me, and obey me, we'll come into you, and we'll plant flowers in your heart, in your garden." Well, the second part of that of that passage in John 14, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, is really the part that ties in with this whole idea of in the beginning and, and there being life and light in Jesus. And it's one we often miss, but it ties this whole thing together. It's the reason I wanted to read through verse 14 or 15. It says this. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father. And the word glory there is a Greek word, doxa. And I'm not just show, telling you that because, uh, because I want to show you how much Greek I know. I actually don't know. I used to know a lot, and I've forgotten almost all of it, but I'm more like the guy in my big fat Greek wedding who wants to tell you that everything comes from Greek words. And, and we get the word doxology from this. You know, doxology, praise God, from whom all blessings flow, praise him all creatures here below. Heavenly hosts, praise Father, Son, Holy Ghost. My oldest son, when he was a little boy, thought that, said, praise God from whom all blessings flow, praise him all creatures, here we go. I thought that I actually think that works really well, you know. Like here we go, let's do it. But the word doxology is is the word we get like to give praise or to give glory to 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 put glory where it you know to to give credit where it's due. But the word actually means doxa means splendor brightness, magnificence, like the sun, the moon, and the stars shine and light up. When when there's a full moon, it lights up the, you know, the sky. It means magnificence and excellence and preeminence and majesty. And the word doxa, when it's used in this way, means it only belongs to God. It belongs to Jesus alone. This is his glory. His glory can't be, he can't share this. He can't, you know, he, he can come and and, and be flesh like us, and he can live amongst us, but his glory is his alone, and it's saying the brilliance of his light when he comes into darkness is such that it lights the world in a way where it can never be, it's not like the sun and the moon. This is glory that cannot be, it can't diminish. And interestingly enough, the reason it's so significant to me is because do you remember the story of Moses on the mountain where he's up on the mountain, and he comes off the mountain, and he hides his face, why? Because the glory is so bright? Wrong. Paul tells us the reason shot, he hides his face is because the glory is diminishing. Because his, he, Paul gets into, it's like, it's like the, the, the glory of God is like some sort of like massive like a tanning bed. And, 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 and Moses' face is shining so brightly. It's like being in a heat lamp. That When he comes down, his face is red. But for every moment he's away from God, his face begins to return back to its normal color. And so he hides his face so that they won't see that the glory is diminishing. And Paul tells us that that's what, what Moses had to do. But he says, in Christ, we have the opportunity to move from stepping stone to stepping stone into ever-increasing glory. It's the exact opposite. As we come to know him, his glory is so, it's so powerful, it's never diminishing, that as we come to know him more and more, our face actually shines brighter and brighter with every moment. And this is such a significant part of what it means to anticipate him. It's like, it's, it's like the color in our face, you know, getting... Burning brighter and brighter and brighter as we reflect His glory. Do you reflect His glory? And just the final point out of this, and then I'll I'll wrap up. I I think it's my favorite part of this. And it's it, it's almost an aside to everything, but I just think it's so significant that I can't skip it. It says. It says in John 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Amen. He came. He tabernacled with us. He's, he, he, he moved into the neighborhood. He, he came to stay. We've seen his glory, the glory of, of, of the one and only. When we, when we reflect upon him, when we, we set our, our face upon him, it's ever-increasing glory, not diminishing glory. And who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, that phrase, full of grace and truth, We sing that in Joy to the World. He rules the world with truth and grace, grace and truth, however you want to put it. I don't think it really matters. My question, the way I want to unpack this is just to ask you this question. What would your world look like if you were full of truth and full of grace? What would Christmas look like? And I'm talking about, I mean, isn't it weird how we, Nobody argues when we say, you know, Christmas is this chaotic season where all this stuff is going on, and there's all these moving parts and family coming and going, and, and what would our Christmas season just look like? If it's the only holiday that's listed amongst the 43 most stressful things, you know, common to men or to people, what would our Christmas look like if we were just full of truth and grace? It's kind of just a saylaw thing to, to, to dwell on, but here's the fact of the matter. Jesus came full of truth and full of grace. He didn't come. What would it be like if Jesus came full of truth but no grace? It would be pretty devastating, wouldn't it? Because for him to encounter me in my wretched state and say, let me just point out to you who you are and just lays out all of the stuff against me and says, I'm just being honest. I'm just being truthful. This is who you are. And just leaves me there because there's no grace. I, I don't even, even want to think about that idea. But if I look at it the other way and say, if Jesus just came full of grace and left all the truth out, if he just said, you know, Jeff, it just doesn't matter who you are, what you are, anything that you have to, you're, you're, all the parts of you, you know, when, amazing grace, how sweet the song, the sound that saved a wretch like, you. nah, forget the wretch thing. Just, you know, just grace. Just no matter who you are, no matter what you are, you know, I don't ever want to change that. Well, here's the fact of the matter. For him to be full of truth and grace means that he loves me exactly like I am. Nothing at the end of that sentence. He loves me. He loves me. His love is is, is fully poured out on me with nothing held back. And, not but, and his deep desire is to see me conformed more and more into his image to become more like him. And that's where I have to let my face rest upon his face and fix my eyes on it and say, Jesus, I want to become more like you. I need both. You need both. What would Christmas look like? What would our lives look like? If we begin to pray, if you just meditate on this verse, if you just pray and begin to ask the Lord this, Lord, would you fill me with truth and grace? Or fill me with grace and truth. Some of you need more grace. And some of you need more truth. Some of you, like me, need both. All right, let me just wrap up. Brian, you can come on up or whoever's going to come up. Maranatha. I mean that's that's the that's the bottom line. I mean this is this is such a good word. I'm so I'm so thankful for our, our church that uses this name that sounds kinda like a uh, a canoe outfitter. People drive by and they go, What do you guys do there in that little shack with Maranatha? What does it mean? And I've so loved the fact that we get to unpack this word for people. Who, for whom it 's unfamiliar, but to me really the the significance of this word is is that we can step away from all of the all of the crud that 's in the world, even this time of year i, I as a as a pastor i 've been doing this long enough now to know how much ministry I do around this time of the year for people who aren 't experiencing joy to the world but are experiencing something else and there's a really poignant story i I, I remember I, uh, i've referred to it oftentimes and I always keep it in my notes. It's about a, a little girl who was watching her mother and her father getting ready for Christmas and, you know, the season and the days going, you know, by over and over and over again, seeing them repeat themselves in a pattern of stress that was increasing. And to her, it seemed like her dad was completely preoccupied with like burdens and you know and 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 just the crazy schedule and decorations and plans and so much stuff going on and her mom was perpetually concerned with parties and wrapping presents and and all these things that were you know that had taken her focus away from the family and 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 the little girl realized that they just didn't have any time for her and and she she felt as though she was being shoved a, a, you know aside that she was in, in, as christmas was kind of increasing and coming closer and closer to the day that she was becoming more and more of a side character to the whole story. And it seemed to her that she was always being told, can you just kind of move out of the way? I mean, Christmas is coming. We have work to do. So the the story is, is one night in December, she kneels beside her bed and she prays this prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Please forgive us our Christmases as we forgive those who Christmas against us. Could you imagine your child praying that prayer? We have the opportunity as, as followers of Jesus to unpack for our families and unpack for our neighbors and unpack for the people around us the deep significance of this season, the hope, the anticipation, the fullness, the idea of what it means when, as Mark 1 says, it's time. The time is fulfilled. The time is here. We have the opportunity to unpack for people what it means, and so my question to you to wrap this up is, are you ready for Christmas i 'm asking you more than about your activities and getting ready like are you ready to have the tree up and i 'm asking about our attitudes and because every once in a while I, I hear somebody say, "I just can 't get into the Christmas spirit, maybe you 've said that too, have you you don 't have to nod your heads I have, and with that in mind really the the, the Th- let's think about, let's let's say lot in this. Let's take this to the Lord and say, Lord, what is it that this really means if we say a Maranatha Christmas? What are we saying? What we're saying is we believe you've come once in grace and you gave us all we needed, and we believe you're coming again, and we're willing to kind of to rest in that and to go deep in that and to ask you to come. You became a human being. You expressed your love by living among us, by walking with us and talking to us, and that's what Christmas means. You came to us, Maranatha. And you're coming again for us, Maranatha. So if you're able, if you'd stand with me. You can, I'm going to pray in just a moment here at the altar. And I'm going to ask the Lord to... I, I, it's weird, but I always ask him this time of year for a presence. Like I want not just his presence, but I, I want gifts from God. And and I want you to be willing to come and to ask him that as well, that he would flood your heart with this deep sense of gratitude for what he's given you, but also anticipation for him coming into your life and coming this year into your family and making this something different where you don't your children don't have to be delivered from Christmas. And so Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you would... Pour out on us this Maranatha anticipation, this deep longing.